The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. Most people think of themselves as good and would like to be thought of as good. Consequently, many, given the choice, would prefer to do a good thing instead of a bad thing. But it's not always easy to determine what is good or bad in this confusing, pretzel twisty world full of complicated choices and pitfalls and booby traps and bad advice from seemingly trustworthy friends. And even if you do somehow navigate the minefield of modern life and succeed at being good, you're just one person. This planet contains 8 billion people, and a lot of them don't seem to care at all about being good. There are corrupt politicians and conniving CEOs and people who don't pick up the dog poop when their dogs poop on the sidewalk and evil dictators. So it's hard not to wonder if one person being good even matters. Or, to phrase it the way I did when I started reading moral philosophy and thinking about this enormous, knotted, tangled mess, what the hell am I supposed to do? Hello and everyone, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Michael Shaw is a television writer and producer who's worked on shows like The Office, Master of None, The Comeback and Hacks, and has created or co-created Parks and Recreation, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place and Rutherford Falls. Today I'm talking to Michael Shaw about his book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. Michael Shaw, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. Michael, this might be the easiest podcast I've ever had to prepare for because you've written all the questions for me. (laughs) I don't know if that approach is ethically or morally acceptable, but I'm trusting that you'll let me know either way as the Mm -hmm. chat progresses. Absolutely. So if I want to learn about moral philosophy, why would I read your book instead of a breakdown from a smarter professor type person? Great question. Um, The goal here for me was to say, look, these are the smartest people who ever lived. They spent their lives mulling over these big questions of how we ought to behave and how we should treat other people. And they wrote books that were so dense and long and boring that no one ever reads them. So my job is to take all this stuff that I read and by the way, had explained to me by some very patient and kind and thoughtful professional type people, and to try to convert it into what I think of as a conversation that I'd like to have between me and whoever's reading the book, not a PhD level lecture or a graduate level seminar in the subject, but rather just here is what I think these people are saying. Here's how I think it can help us. And the fact that I am talking to you and explaining it to you and adding in some jokes and silly footnotes and stuff will make it easier to understand than if you go and check out Kant's critique of pure reason from your local library and try to hack your way through it. So the answer to why you should read this version instead of a version by some smarter, more educated person is mostly because it's more likely you'll understand my version. I absolutely agree. And I think I did, but we'll we'll be able to tell as we progress through this chat. (laughs) Now, Aristotle, He comes up a lot in conversation, but before we talk about Aristotle, uh, I want you to give me an all-encompassing unifying theory that explains good or bad people. Easy. 
30 seconds. Here we go. Um, there are a lot of different ways to describe good and bad people. Some of the great philosophers do it through their actions. It's only, it's not about a, the person and whether the person's good or bad. It's simply whether what they did is good or bad. Aristotle believed it was about being a good person. He thought if you are a good person, you will then do good things. Um, so he aimed at sort of saying, here's what kind of person you should be, not here's what you should do. Um, so the theories range widely. And there was a, a philosopher named Derek Parfit who died fairly recently, who said that basically all of these people were scaling the same mountain. They were just doing it on different faces, right? Like they're, they're all aiming at the same thing. They all have the same objective. They just had different ways of trying to get to where they were all going. So, you know, uh, the way that one might define a good or bad person is if you're Aristotle, a person who has the right virtues in the right amounts is, you know, is the right amount, not only is generous, but is generous in the right, to the right degree towards the right people, not only is courageous, but is the right amount of courageous his theory is called virtue ethics. And, and um, it is, uh, I think, the most humane of all of the theories because it's essentially trial and error. He's basically saying the way that you become a good person is you try to achieve these exact right amounts of these virtues. When you blow it, as you inevitably will, you sort of check in with yourself. You say, oh, I was a little too angry there, or I wasn't angry enough there, or I may have been too kind or not kind enough or whatever. And you continually check in and aim at that dead center right amount of all of these different virtues. And the process of doing that not only brings you closer to sort of flourishing as a human being, but also makes you a better and better person as you go along. Very interesting. You kind of stole my next question, which was, uh, is this bloke Aristotle all he's cracked up to be? And from your, <laughs> from your explanation, it seems that he might be. Yeah, he, I believe, I'm often asked if there's one or another philosopher who I personally find the most helpful or useful. I believe that I lean Aristotle, I guess, um, because he, he basically says to you, like, look, you're not trying to be perfect. You're not actually aiming for perfection. And what you're aiming for is just the right amount of all of these virtues. And because of that, he doesn't say to you, you can never get angry. You can never be jealous. You can never be um, rage filled. Even he's saying that when it's important actually to be angry occasionally, because if you're never angry at anyone, when someone exhibits bad behavior, you're sort of giving them a green light that what they're doing is okay. He just says you have to be angry in the right amount toward the right people for the right reasons. So that's a much more forgiving viewpoint, right? It's like, if a philosopher said in order to be a good person, you can never be angry, no one would listen to that philosopher because it's impossible in the modern world to never be angry. Aristotle says, no, 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 you should be. You just have to check in with yourself to make sure you're angry at the right people for the right reasons and the right amount. And that, I think that he has a little bit of give. I describe him at one point in the book as, you know, when, a, when you're bowling and you're a kid, the bowling alley will put up those bumpers in the, in the gutters to, to knock your ball back toward the center. That's sort of what Aristotle's theory is. It's like when you're going too far to one side, he says, no, 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 bump back the other way. Just aim, aim back this way a little bit. And if you go too far in that direction, it's like, no, 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 go back this way a little bit. That's a very kind way, I think, to try to explain to people how they ought to behave. Does sound like a very reasonable fellow after all. But I'm a bit confused and from a teleological point of view by... Mm. 
that was very clever of me, <laughs> by Aristotle's proposition that an acorn's intrinsic telos is to become a fully grown oak tree when I thought an acorn's intrinsic telos was to be fed to pigs to produce delicious and expensive ham. Did Aristotle get it wrong? I don't believe he did, no. He was very, uh, he loves analogies, this guy. That's one of the reasons he's easier to read, I think, than some of the other people is he loves analogies and he says, you know, the, the purpose of a flute is to make beautiful music in the same way that the purpose of a human being is to flourish in the way he's describing. I find those, those little, um, they're almost like little uh, aphorisms or riddles or something where he says, look, the goal of an acorn is to become a fully grown oak tree. You then can't help but think of yourself as a little acorn that's being planted in the earth. And you have these dreams suddenly of becoming this giant, mighty, strong oak tree that will provide shade and shelter for birds and such. So he it's one of the things I like most about his writing is that he's very uh, an analogy heavy. And when you're in a subject like philosophy that can be hard to understand, analogies I find incredibly useful. So I, I'm, I'm siding with him, I guess, is what I'm saying over you. I'm siding with Aristotle over the purpose of an acorn. Well, that's disappointing because I thought <laughs> that producing delicious ham feeds so many people and makes so many people happy, which might be equivalent to providing shelter for birds or whatever. It's possible. Look, you the, there is you you're stumbling into one of the the great frustrations of philosophy, in my opinion, which is that philosophers don't agree on anything. I mean, it's it's infuriating. Like you, it, it, as soon as you say. If you're in a discussion with a philosopher and you say something like, um, okay, let's make an assumption before you even say what it is, the philosophers will say, well, can we really make an assumption? Can anyone make an assumption? Is language meaningful or meaningless? Do words, what are words? What are, who are you? Who am I? Why are there things? Like you'll, you can spiral off into these endlessly kind of pointless thought experiments about what it is that we can even know. And it's really uh, infuriating. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why nobody wants to read this stuff. Nobody wants to engage in the subject. It's because as soon as you say A equals B, someone will say like, how do we know they equal each other? What does an equal sign even mean? Like you get lost um, in the weeds pretty quickly with philosophy. So we just need to agree on certain basic things in order to even have a conversation. And one of them is that you know, acorns exist. Like, let's start there. Do acorns exist? Okay, yes, they exist. Now we can talk about what their purpose is. And that's one of the things I've enjoyed about your book too, is that you bring everything down to base level. I try, yes. Um, it's not always easy to do that, but I'm sure there are actual philosophers who actually know what they're talking about out there who are reading my book and scoffing audibly and uh, tossing it uh, insouciantly aside because they've determined that it's meaningless. But, um, but that's just sort of the deal. Like if you want to get anywhere, if you want this to have any kind of practical application to our lives, you kind of have to skip through some of the semantic stuff and just get into like, what do, what do we think this person is really saying? In order to be of any use to anyone, these theories have to be practical, right? They have to be things that we can actually employ. And that's where a lot of these people kind of um, I think run aground, you know, it's where uh, the character of Chidi in the good place was a strict Kantian. And he was so concerned with whether or not he was following one of these categorical imperatives that he um, 
essentially never did anything. He just was too scared to act because he was so worried about acting wrongly. And if you take any of these theories out to the sort of far end of the bell curve and get to their extreme ends, you end up paralyzed or cowering in fear or hiding in your garage because you're too afraid to do literally anything because you're too afraid that it will be the wrong thing. So nobody wants that. That doesn't help anyone if we get to that point. Talking about paralyzing problems, central to your reasoning in this book is the thought experiment involving the runaway trolley. And by trolley, you're referring to what we might call a tram. Mm -hmm. could kill five people unless I pull a lever that will deliberately kill one person that saved the five. It's a common problem, uh, but aren't we just getting ourselves caught up in an endless loop from which we will never escape and suffer from some kind of moral implosion where we just walk away and let everybody die and say, to hell with the consequences? That is a, uh, you know, what's funny is I, during the pandemic, um, my son's sixth grade classmates were uh, were watching The Good Place. And my wife said, you know, we're desperate for these kids to have something to do because they can't see each other. So why don't you teach a little class where they watch some episodes of the show and then you talk about the theories. And I thought, you know, this is a good way to test out whether or not I can explain these theories to a bunch of 12 year olds, right? So I had them watch the trolley problem episode. And then I talked, I asked them what they would do. And what was hilarious and delightful was that they all just tried to find loopholes. They were all like, well, I would just jump off the trolley and warn the people that it was coming. And I was like, no, can't do that. And then they said, well, I would, you know, I would start flashing the alarm bell and then I would do, you know, and it was like, they all just, they tried to find a, a way out basically. And what is wonderful about the trolley problem. And I think the reason that for 50 years, it's been kind of at the dead center of all moral philosophy discussions is that it gives you two terrible outcomes in either situation. Someone's going to die. If it weren't so hard to come up with a good answer, it would, no one would care about it. But because Philip Afoot, the British philosopher who designed it, created a scenario in which even in the best case scenario, you would say, a person is hit by a trolley and killed <laughs> like that's, that's, that's horrifying. Right. So it, that's, I think why it's such a good way to get at what we believe is right or wrong about a situation is because it presents you with two terrible outcomes and your reasoning is just, which is, which is slightly better. It's not, which is the best it's which one is slightly better than the other one. So we're really talking here about consequences or the consequences of our decisions should we be bothered by the consequences of our decisions at all? And how can I use consequentialist accounting to achieve this state of not being bothered by the consequences of my decisions so that I can be as satisfied with myself as many of the people around me appear to be? (laughs) Well, if you're Immanuel Kant, you're not concerned at all with the consequences of your actions, because again, if you acted out of this sense of duty to follow a categorical imperative, doesn't matter what happens. If you're a utilitarian, if you're Jeremy Bentham, a British philosopher, 18th century, or J.S. Mill, his disciple and and person who really developed utilitarianism into the theory that we know it to be today, then that's all you're cared about. You don't care at all about the motivations behind what you did. You simply care about how many people it it, uh, gave happiness or pleasure and how few people it gave pain or suffering or sadness. So again, completely diametrically opposed ideas here. And the utilitarians were socialists and they, their, the development of that philosophy had a lot to do with wanting to kind of break down the class system in England and Europe and elsewhere 
and to say there are no people whose happiness is more important than anyone else's happiness. We shouldn't care more about a member of the House of Lords being happy than the average guy, you know, as a, a night janitor in a hospital. And so they said, basically, everyone is the same. Everyone's happiness and sadness counts the same. And the best action is the one that simply results in the most happiness or the least pain. That's a very inviting philosophy because it's it's basically math. Um, Pamela Hieronymi, who's one of the advisors who helped us with the show and who read early chapters of my book and gave me a lot of great notes, she refers to utilitarianism as ethics by spreadsheet. It's basically just laying out the results, looking at them, analyzing them, and determining the moral worth of the action based on who had the most points. And again, it's very inviting and it's very um, understandable. And it also leads you to some horrifying conclusions when you apply it. Because, for example, you would, is it okay if you're a, a doctor to, um, if five people need organ transplants or they're going to die? You see a healthy guy refilling the soda machine and you think, oh, this is perfect. I'm a utilitarian, so I'll just murder that guy. I'll take all his organs and put them into the people who need organ transplants. This is great. Five people uh, have their lives saved. Only one person dies. Fantastic. I win because I'm a utilitarian. Obviously, no one would, absent the most strict possible utilitarian, no one would say like, yes, that's an allowable action. You can't go around murdering people and divvying up their organs. What kind of world are we living in when that happens? So yes, the consequences matter and intentions matter. And the question that the, the 18th and 19th century philosophers wrestled with is to what degree Kant thought it was only intention. The consequentialists thought it was only results and like most things, the true answer is probably somewhere in between. If we can return for a moment to the trolley problem, but it's a slightly different trolley problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that really gets to me. It uh, boils my blood, I think, as you correctly say, whenever I encounter it. Two things, actually. People who don't return the shopping trolley to the shopping trolley thing and people mm-hmm. who take up two car spaces instead of parking more considerately. Mm-hmm. I know that I myself would never commit either of these offences. <laughs> but who is being unreasonable here? And who can I turn to in the philosophical world to educate those that do? So the question of should you return your shopping cart to the little corral? I don't even know what you call it. Let's call it a corral. I'm happy with corral. Um, great. Um, this this is a question that I have wondered about my entire adult life. I, I don't know what the rules are. No one has ever explained it to me. Are you supposed to? Can you leave it? Is it okay to leave it in your parking space? Sometimes there are employees who walk around and collect them and return them. So you think, well, that's their job. And so that seems to indicate that it's okay. But, but then you think, well, maybe they only had to hire that person because selfish jerks like me have been leaving them near my parking space. I just have never known what the rules are. And there's an entire chapter in the book that discusses this question. And each of the chapters in the book is organized around a question. And each of them gets at a certain kind of philosophical theory or idea uh, that was one of the ones we used either on The Good Place or just something I've read that I thought was interesting. In this case, what I'm talking about is called contractualism. It was developed by a Harvard professor named T.M. Scanlon, who's still alive and with us. And he basically said that the right way to 
come up with rules for a society, a heterogeneous society with a lot of different people who have a lot of different opinions on a lot of different things is you all sit around a table, you start pitching ideas for rules for your society. Everybody has a veto and the rules that you adopt are the ones that no one rejects assuming, and this is an enormous assumption that everyone is being reasonable. That's the word he uses, right? So if everyone's being reasonable, you pitch a rule that says we shouldn't uh, murder each other. Anyone reject that rule? No, obviously not. Why would anyone reject that rule? That rule is adopted. And you just keep going and you get as specific as you can. You get as detailed as you can. But if one person in your group vetoes the rule, the rule is not adopted. So what it does is it forces you to come up with rules or laws that you can justify to other people and you get to um, hear other people's justifications for their rules. And if you don't agree with their justification, then the rule is rejected. So the question then becomes in something like a shopping cart, going back to a corral in a grocery store, you imagine sitting around and you pitch a rule and the rule says, hey, after we go grocery shopping, we should return our carts to the front of the store, to the little corral thingy, so that the next person who comes into the store finds a cart waiting for them. Would anyone reject that rule? Well, maybe, because maybe someone would say, well, wait a second, the grocery stores have people who go around collecting the carts. Why, if that's the case, can't we just leave them in the parking lot? That also seems kind of reasonable. And so you eventually get to this point where you think, okay, well, maybe the rule is if the store doesn't seem to have someone whose job it is to do that, then you ought to return it. If the store does have someone who going around collecting them, then that also seems like a non-rejectable rule and we can just leave it where we found it. The point I make in the book though, is that we're not all uh, coming to that shopping center with the same demands on our lives. We don't all have the same problems. We don't all have the same amount of leisure time and economic resources and everything else. And I believe that if you are, um, if you have the time and the energy and you are, you consider yourself a fortunate person because you can go into this grocery store and buy all the groceries you need and not think twice about what it's going to do to your family economically, then you might think to yourself, okay, it's okay that I leave this shopping cart here. That's, we agreed to that rule because this store has employees who are walking around collecting them. But I can, I can afford to bring this back over to the front of, to the corral, right? Because I have, I have an extra two minutes. There are no demands on my life that require these two minutes of me. And it will alleviate the burden of the person who is going around collecting them. That's one fewer cart that that person has to collect. And, you know, my mom told me to put stuff back where it came from when I use things in the world. And so I'm just going to like do a little tiny bit extra here to make someone else's life a little bit easier potentially. And that, that when you think about it, like a lot of people's lives get easier when you do things like that. The next shopper has a cart waiting for them. There's the cart isn't blocking a parking space. When a new person pulls into your parking space, the cart isn't going to wobble down the down the row and bonk into someone's car and put a dent in their car, which is happens all the time and is annoying. The employee has one less cart that he or she has to take to the corral. There's a bunch of different people potentially who could benefit from something that's very, very small. And my argument is that once we figure out what those contractualist minimums are, what are the basic things that we all agree to? Sometimes if you can, 
it's a nice thing to do and it's a considerate thing to do to go a little bit above that and say, okay, this isn't morally required of me, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's nice. And I think if there, if you can just get to the point in your life, ideally, where you're doing things just because they're nice things to do, that is part of living a, a fortunate life where you don't take your life for granted. You don't take the things you have for granted. And you're just doing a little bit extra, a very small amount extra to try to improve the lives of other people. I think that in essence is the goal that we should all share. Just makes me think I've, I've never read a book that uh, uh, explores the consequences of shopping trolleys more thoroughly. Yes, I definitely have that. I have that going for me. It's a, the, the most thorough discussion of grocery shopping that any nonfiction book has ever presented. <laughs> most definitely. Um, this is a very selfish question, but I'm going to pose it anyway. Will reading this book make me seem more intelligent and therefore more attractive in a range of social and professional situations? And could this book even save lives? <laughs> Uh, I will say it absolutely will make you more attractive in any number of social and or professional situations. Um, and also, although you're being facetious, uh, which I, which is delightful, um, I, I guess this is an opportunity for me to say that all of the proceeds from the book are going to charity. So in a weird way, yes, it can save lives. I think that, it's that going... is virtuous beyond, <laughs> beyond virtuous. Well, that, uh, I, I, that was, when I sold the book, I, I had, I definitely had the thought that it would be weird to write a book like this for personal gain. It just seems like a bad idea, like just bad karma. So uh, I, I talked to Todd May, who's the professor who helped me write the book. And I said, listen, I want to, I'm going to give all this money away. And he was like, great. And uh, sounds good. And so I, I actually insisted that he take some small amount of money to compensate him for his professional time. And then he and I are donating, I'm donating 100% of everything I make to charity. And he is donating the vast lion's share of what he makes to charity. Uh, and those, those, there's five different charities we're splitting it among. Um, one of them is the IRC, run by David Miliband, who um, that it's just an international relief aid organization. One of them is the, Rain, the Rainforest Trust, which is, uh, does exactly what it sounds like. It preserves rainforest land. One of them is a World Central Kitchen, which is a world food bank. So... So I don't know if it's actually saving lives, but in theory, at least, you should know that if you buy it, the money that you're spending is being sent off to, uh, to good causes. Very worthy, very virtuous. My final question, and it involves further reading, and since I've just read your book, uh, should I even bother with further reading suggestions that pop up throughout How to Be Perfect? A lot of them seem to be pretty hard going. Uh, by your own admission, especially that one you call a 75-page long migraine. Ah, uh, Wittgenstein, yes. Don't bother. Don't even try. That's my, my strong advice. Uh, yes, Wittgenstein wrote essentially one book in his life. Um, he published a couple other papers as well, but his one book uh, is about a 75 or 80 pages long, and I think I read four to six sentences and then uh, realized I was in over my head and stopped. But there are definitely other things that I talk about, other papers and other books in, that I write about that are easily understandable. William James's theory of pragmatism, which he delivered in a series of lectures in 1906, is eminently readable and, and really great. Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus is eminently readable and understandable, even, even for all its crazy existential gymnastics. 
there are a, a bunch of people um, who have written things that are clear and and uh, wide-eyed and um, and easily understood. And if if anything in the book, um, in my book, um, strikes a chord, I highly recommend going back and reading some of that stuff too, because. First of all, it just feels amazing to read a piece of philosophy and understand it. It's an incredible feeling. And, and also because it genuinely, I think, can open your eyes and put ideas in your head that hadn't been there before. And that is a wonderful feeling too. Michael, I, I really want to thank you for the instruction that will inevitably lead me to being a better person and also for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've been talking to Michael Shaw about his new book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.